Flatworms are what are known as obligate endoparasites. They live inside of the host, entering the body through the ingestion of larvae or eggs. They are not creatures that go around attacking people. Well, that's good. I didn't want to have to tell Skinner that his murder suspect was a giant blood-sucking worm. Apparently, it had attached itself to the bile duct and was feeding off the liver. The introduction of attacks widely known as the law against social parasites. It's looking for hosts. Stalin is now officially branded a dictator by his own party. This is not a man. It's a monster. There it is. Oh, my God. Salutations and consolations, dearest kiddos. It's me, it's me, it's DXB, Dixby Caravaggio. I am beyond thrilled that you're back here with me in my dilapidated home, pennsylvania home base. As teased last issue, this issue of In Lieu Of promises to be one of the best issues ever in the history of this podcast. Can something be best when you only have two things to compare? Uh, I'm getting off track here, aren't I? Bottom line! It's gonna be a wet, wild ride tonight, kiddos. Fasten your seatbelts, batten your hatches, and maybe get one of those child locks for your toilet. I want to talk with you all today about so-called social parasites in the former Soviet Union and the law passed to staunch their growth, and how a mutated monstrosity from one of television's most iconic science fiction series brought to life the fears of what lies beyond what we choose to see, the dusky periphery of the subversive and the submerged. I wish I could give you more. I wish I could be a little more descriptive this early on in the issue, but, well... uh, You better go talk to the man in the corner, dressed in black, smoking the cigarette. In lieu of conceptualizing labor as a right or as a duty, and this argument's legacy after the Cold War, why did the X-Files give us a fluke man? Volume 1, Issue 2. Are you ready to believe? Street protests in Belarus against a new tax on part-time workers spread on Sunday from Minsk to other towns. Around 2,000 people were reported to have taken to the streets in Gomel, Belarus's second city, to protest the introduction of a tax widely known as the law against social parasites. It's a matter of honor for the government to revoke this decree. A strong government should revoke it. It should admit its mistakes. A weak government won't do that. Their anger is centered around a new decree on preventing social dependency. 
The tax requires those who declare less than 183 days of work per year to pay the equivalent of $250 as compensation for lost taxes, more than half the average monthly salary. Freeloaders, leeches, bottom feeders, just plain lazy. Hard workers, dedicated, morally in the right, just trying to survive. The interaction between a social parasite and a host from which the social parasite um, absorbs economic nutrients is a complicated one. It's meant to mirror the biological, non-mutual relationship between microscopic parasite, like a fluke worm, and larger host, like a person's liver, maybe. Later, we'll meet the embodiment of the concept, and for anyone who has already seen the X-Files episode titled The Host, you know it gets gross fast. We're talking sewage processing and porta-potty disposal. A disclaimer, this early part of the issue will be the most polemic and the least yucky. The second half will be going all in on graphic allegories, from blood-sucking insects to intestinal parasites, from trichinosis to zombie ants. Okay, it won't be that bad. Although I do suddenly want a mint and a shower. Now, I feel it's really important to stress right from the outset that this issue, while it'll be spending most of its energy on Eurasia, the former USSR, um, what is now Russia, the West and the United States in particular, we have our own implicit biases against those in our society who we deem parasites. These attitudes are traceable way back to the early, early, early years of colonization a good one to read if you're more interested in the in the early history. Um, if you haven't picked this one up yet in school, uh, it may find you at some point. Uh, it's Max Weber's The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. I think it's a really good place to start. For Americans, social parasitism is a spectrum and depends largely on where you sit. From what vantage point you view those perpetrators sucking the money, the spirit, the lifeblood out of an otherwise healthy host nation, or those victims of an institutionalized system of disparity and cronyism, the lasting effects of which will continue for generations in a hopeless spiral of dependence. See, if you're on the right, you tend to define social parasites as those collecting unemployment, maybe, a disability, or some other social dependency who are more lazy than interested in finding work, more interested in taking from hardworking Americans who pay their fair share into an already excessively taxed system. And if you're on the left, you tend to view social parasites as the 1%. You know, you go in the other direction. The puppet masters, who don't so much create jobs as much as turmoil amongst the lower 99%. Fostering class infighting to distract us from seeing where all our wages are actually going. It's interesting to me that both sides view their versions of parasites as malicious. I don't know, it may come down to what different social groups define as socially useful work and as socially destructive manipulation of that work. During the Obama years, uh, the Tea Party, remember them? They protested what they viewed as excessive government overreach and taxation. 
And, you know, right now in America, uh, the Trump administration deals with a protest a fortnight, it seems, over everything from his tax returns to his sex life to his alleged perpetration of obstruction of justice. Speaking of protests, the demonstrators in that 2017 Euronews report, uh, the one that was playing earlier, what they were protesting in 2017 was actually a decree from 2015, a decree by Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko, stating that, quote, he who can and should work should work, end quote. The tax roughly equaled 250 U.S. dollars. Per the Washington Post, quote, at the start of 2017, the average monthly salary was 380 U.S. dollars. Ah, okay, so that's why the $250 figure is a painful one. Uh, it's more than half of the monthly salary. Got it. And just how many of these parasites exist and would be subject to the new tax? Quote the Post again, about 470,000 such parasites in a country of 10 million. Hmm, math, carry the, hmm. So an estimated 117.5 million U.S. dollars streaming into the government from a comparatively small section of Belarus's population? Why is everyone getting so bent out of shape? Besides, Lukashenko couched his decree in moral terms and in good citizenship. The tax merely an unfortunate but necessary stipulation to ensure all Belarusians of able mind and body roll up their sleeves and get to work, becoming part of a model, very non-parasitic constituency. What's the big deal? How did the protesters in Belarus fare? Surprisingly well. Okay, that didn't only just sound disingenuous, it, it, it actually was. I don't want to speak for any individuals on the ground in 2017 because I wasn't there. And I don't know if people were intimidated or arrested or injured because of their participation. All I will say is, though, that the protest itself, I guess the protest somehow removed from the protesters, I say it did well because Lukashenko eventually reversed his decree. I mean, for the time being, at least. And I said surprisingly, because Lukashenko hasn't modeled his leadership after other progressive heads of state, um, especially when it comes to criticism of his policies. Olga Klaskovskaya is preparing to visit her brother in prison. She packs the few luxuries permitted by the guards. Her brother Alexander used to be a policeman. Now he's serving a five-year sentence. Alexander was one of thousands that gathered to contest President Lukashenko's election win. International observers called the vote deeply flawed. Alexander was photographed in uniform, urging riot police not to harm protesters. He was badly beaten and the next day arrested. I'm convinced my brother acted as a true citizen, as a true patriot, as a true man. Olga's launched a vocal campaign to free her brother but it's put her in danger. Without any explanation, police came and dragged me from my home. They beat me, pulled me by the hair, and then threw me into a cell full of men. They later accused me of insulting the president. Presidential candidate Vladimir Nikolaev's life also changed the night of the protest. He too was beaten and jailed. Nearly all opposition leaders were arrested soon after the election. Some remain in prison. 
Neklaev's on a two-year suspended sentence. There's no guarantee I'll remain free. Even now they could come and take me away. This is how it is when you're a politician in a dictatorship. Activists regularly stage demonstrations, this in the central post office, but they usually end quickly. Undercover police are close by. They threaten to arrest us if we don't stop filming. They've held vigil here every day since the night of the protest. These are the families of those behind bars, those harassed by the authorities and those that have fled the country. Despite harsh international criticism for the treatment of political prisoners and even sanctions against Belarus by the EU and US, the situation here remains very much the same. There are still hundreds behind bars there for questioning the leadership of Alexander Lukashenko. That was from an Al Jazeera report of Lukashenko's election to a fourth term. Damn it, Dixby, how many terms can a president of Belarus serve? Lukashenko was elected as the first president of Belarus in 1994. Lukashenko is also Belarus's only president, remaining in power ever since winning in 1994. He's serving his fifth term right now with no signs of stepping down. There was a 2004 referendum which saw an end to presidential term limits. And it all but ensured that Lukashenko remains where he is for a long time. When I see him in the news reports, um, in all the videos that I watched for this issue, he reminds me of a strongman in the old Soviet style. And he definitely likes to be thought of as such. In the same ballpark as Russian President Vladimir Putin's tenure in the KGB, Lukashenko has a history in Soviet leadership and governance, serving in the Soviet army in the 80s and as deputy to the Supreme Council of the Republic of Belarus before the dissolution of the USSR. In fact, here's a little historical treat for you kiddos. Lukashenko's esteem for the Soviet Union was perhaps at its most striking during the 94 campaign, where he prided himself on the fact that he was the only political leader from Belarus who voted against the 1991 pact, which proclaimed the end of the Soviet Union. For all of his esteem for the USSR, it doesn't really surprise me that Lukashenko would revive a policy position reminiscent of the 1960s, of the anti-parasite law that was passed. And here I'll conveniently reference another decree like Lukashenko's. Not from 2015, of course. This one's from May 1961 in Moscow. <gasps> Deep breath. On strengthening the struggle with persons avoiding socially useful work and leading an antisocial parasitic way of life and exhale. Labor was foundational to the Soviet Union, woven into the everyday of every citizen and into the government's expectations of those citizens. As declared in Article 1 of their 1936 constitution, quote, 
The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics is a socialist state of workers and peasants, end quote. And if that wasn't on the nose enough for you, it goes on to state in Article 12 that, quote, In the USSR, work is the obligation and a matter of honor of every able-bodied citizen, in accordance with the principle, he who does not work, neither shall he eat. The Soviet enshrinement of the obligation to work was one of the many tools that Stalin wielded during the Great Purge of the 30s. And I'm not going to go into the Great Purge of the 30s. I recommend you go look into that for yourself. Um, There is no podcast wide enough to accurately cover that. And I'm really confident in that position. Joseph Stalin, ruler of a sixth of the earth for 30 years, has been thrown from his pedestal. Colleague of Lenin in the stormy days when the Bolshevik Revolution shook the world, the man who took the mantle of Lenin when he died, Stalin is now officially branded a dictator by his own party through its spokesman, Comrade Khrushchev. The leader who is above criticism, the little father of his people, is convicted three years after his death of having ruled by terror. Lenin is said to have warned the party against giving Stalin too much power. Today, when thousands he purged are being declared innocent, when Russia has repaired the destruction of a war he would not foresee, his country must be remembering Lenin's warning. Khrushchev's emergence to the position of first secretary in 1953 signaled the death of Stalinism, perhaps even more so than Stalin's death did, if we're being honest. But when Khrushchev's government passed the anti-parasite law in the 60s, it was viewed, at least according to Dr. Louis Siegelbaum, professor of Russian and European history at Michigan State University, as a manifest policy reversal. According to him, quote, it was only towards the end of the 1930s that workers who were absent from work without excuse or who quit their jobs without authorization were made criminally liable and subjected to imprisonment, end quote. Repealing these measures in the 50s following Stalin's death was in keeping with, quote, the liberalization process of the Khrushchev years. The 1961 decree, perhaps not unlike Lukashenko's 2015 decree, seemingly came out of nowhere. Exactly who was guilty of parasitism was never clear-cut, because the law and its enforcement were equally vague. People's courts were actually established in cities. There were sentences of banishment. The law was leveraged to convict citizens who were definitely guilty of something, but not something that explicitly fell afoul of standing regulations. I was actually able to find a doctoral thesis on the subject, um, and it actually came out a year after this episode of X-Files that we're going to be talking about later. Um, This was published in 1995 by Douglas R. Callum. The anti-parasite law was a catch-all, quote, directed against persons hard to convict for specific crimes, but still living in a shadow economy of private speculation, prostitution, handouts from rich parents, vagrancy, and begging. Reading through the legal text, the phrase parasitic way of life keeps cropping up. The ability to work and the refusal to do so meant more than just undermining the law. It was a reflection of your entire ethos, you know, your soul, whatever that unseen thing is that makes up the most concentrated form of you. 
even the guise of work. And I don't even mean like pretending to work, I mean more like holding down a job but not performing to your best abilities. That could actually be enough to land yourself without any land. You know, banished. And what was said banishment like? According to Dr. Amir Pasfush, a senior lecturer at the University of Sussex, quote, the law included sanctions such as two to five years of enforced resettlement with confiscation of good gained by non-labor means and the obligation to work, end quote. Dr. Pasfush also adds that, quote, anti-parasitism was incorporated into the criminal code of the Russian Republic in 1970 and included a penalty of one-year deprivation of liberty or correctional tasks, or two years for repeat offenders, end quote. Wow, that was happening in the 70s. You know, when your old pal Dixby starts to uh, arrive on the scene in the 80s, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, that was the name that I grew up with, uh, Gorbachev and his policies to reform the Soviet Union completely changed how labor was legislated. Missing from the International Labor Conference's 1991 report on the USSR was the state's guarantee of work. Adopted earlier that year, the Fundamental Principles Law of the USSR and Union Republics on Employment of Population of USSR provisioned the, quote, right to work and free choice of employment, end quote. The legislation also redefined what it meant to be unemployed. The voluntary nature of work meant unemployment could no longer be criminalized, effectively ending the anti-parasite law. Work then had undergone another mutation from an obligation and a duty to a right and an option. Russia's transition to a market economy was bumpy, to say the least. And that really is the least I could possibly say. Gorbachev's reforms were gradual, hoping, as journalist Keith Gessen puts it, Quote, to tap into the native entrepreneurial spirit of his people. And he did. What he didn't realize, though he should have, is that capitalism isn't necessarily productive. It can be parasitic. In this case, capitalism attached itself to the massive Soviet economy and started sucking out its insides, end quote. Remember that thing about parasitism being a spectrum? According to Gessen, Quote, many of the men later known as the oligarchs got their start during this period. A weakened central government, a rise of foreign investment, rampant market manipulations, and growing black markets. The table for the collapse of the Soviet Union was set. Everyone was a genius in the early 90s because everybody saw it coming, right? But that was the economic side, and economic woes weren't the only woes. The 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster, which saw radioactive material escaping into the atmosphere at historic levels, brought the subject of the Soviet's nuclear arsenal front and center. Moscow Television Tonight. For the first time ever, the Soviet Union admits it has had a nuclear accident, and it's clearly a major one. It's almost certainly the uh, most severe accident that has ever taken place in uh, the short history of civilian nuclear power. 
it seems virtually certain that what the Soviets have experienced is a nuclear meltdown. How serious and far-reaching would the effects be? Go check out the rest of that Nightline report. It's fascinating how the world gradually discovered that something was very, very, very wrong in Russia. Reports of radiation spikes and radioactive air coming in from Kiev and Budapest. It's a fascinating glimpse of our world before the Internet. Just four years after the Chernobyl incident, communist rule in the USSR would dissolve. And just a year after that, on Christmas Day, 1991, something happened across every television screen in the world. The news from ITN. Gorbachev, the last president of the Soviet Union, resigns. The red flag of communism is lowered over the Kremlin. Yeltsin takes control of 30,000 Soviet nuclear weapons. And world leaders pay tribute to Gorbachev's achievements. Good evening. The red flag came down over the Kremlin tonight as President Gorbachev resigned and brought to an end seven decades of communist rule in the Soviet Union. 30,000 Soviet nuclear weapons. The threat of a Chernobyl repeat was very real. And maybe we can say is very real, right? Future nuclear disasters like the 2011 one in Fukushima would be forever compared in scope and severity to Chernobyl's. Chernobyl also served, and still serves, uh, as a convenient well for creatives to draw from. You think I'm exaggerating. Check out the quite extensive cultural impact of the Chernobyl disaster Wikipedia page. I mean, the whole catastrophe is fascinating. It's as fascinating as it is tragic. So many people have dipped into this well, including the writers of Fox's hit show The X-Files when they went about creating a putrid, paralyzing, unforgettable... Actually, if you haven't seen this thing yet, you probably wouldn't believe it. That is, of course, unless you're ready to believe. Beginning aboard a Russian freighter off the Atlantic coast, the second episode of the second season possesses all the hallmarks of an X-Files Monster of the Week episode. We've got mysterious deaths, folks. We've got flustered local law enforcement. Uh, We have Fox Mulder, who is all too willing to speculate about potential suspects. We have Dana Scully countering Mulder's far-fetched theories with cold rationalism based in science. And finally, the suspect, upon discovery, proving correct both Mulder and Scully's hypotheses, although not quite how each originally conceived them. Fans of The X-Files divide its episodes between anthology episodes, uh, those dealing with the continuous arc of extraterrestrial investigation and deep government conspiracy, 
and Monster of the Week episodes, those concerned with a single, usually non-reoccurring paranormal threat. These were the one-offs, the ones and dones. If one were to peruse the X-Files themselves, me first, me first, one would find strange standalone cases featuring all sorts of creatures, oddities, and superpowered psychopaths. In fact, some of Mulder and Scully's most memorable encounters during their long tenure on TV don't involve aliens at all. I mean, think about it. Eugene Toombs, that was always my dad's favorite. The killer who could contort himself into the narrowest of spaces and who awakens from hibernation every 30 years to feast on human livers. What about the charming Mrs. Paddock, the Satanist substitute teacher? Or there's always the lovely Rob Roberts, the brain-eating fast food worker. And then there's the Peacock family. I'm not going to talk about the Peacock family. All I will say is that there's definitely an issue of in lieu of contained in that X-File. But in today's issue of In Lieu of, we're going to be talking about a very, very special, a, a, a very, very memorable monster of the week. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. That's right, boys and girls. That's right, my kiddos. It's the Fluke Man. While this episode is a classic, I was shocked when I went back and was reading uh, reviews, the critical reception, the critical response to this episode of The X-Files, and many critics wrote it off as fairly run-of-the-mill. A case that was concerned more with uh, jump scaring you and grossing you out than anything else deeper. But that's not how I remember it. Watching this episode for the first time with my dad. We would always tune in to the X-Files on Friday nights. And the lights would always be switched off. The only light in the room was glowing from the television and from his aquarium. He had this big aquarium that was to the left of the couch. Halfway through each episode, and like clockwork, uh, my dad would get up and completely lose interest in the episode, and he would just start cleaning the fish tank. And I never helped him clean the fish tank. I was petrified. There was no way I was going to miss a second of such a scary show. But it wasn't just a scary show. It was also an adult show. For a kid, it just felt like a very, very grown-up show. The characters talked like, well, what I imagined FBI agents talked like. You know, they were very serious, very clinical. They showed little emotion. Even when I had no idea what they were talking about, which was usually all the time, Mulder and Scully's verbal sparring entranced me. And I would be lying to you, kiddos, if I told you it doesn't still. Close the door. called turbillaria or it's commonly known as a fluke or flatworm this was living inside the body apparently it had attached itself to the bile duct and was feeding off the liver lovely believe it or not something like 40 million people are infected worldwide this isn't where you tell me some terrible story about sushi is it well maybe you'd rather hear what you can catch from a nice rare steak so what the murder weapon was a top sirloin Flukes are endemic in unsanitary conditions. It's more likely that the victim contracted it down inside the sewer. Before or after he died? I don't know. 
According to my sources, it's unlikely that a single parasite could have killed him. He was a young man. But the weird thing is, there's no other discernible cause of death. The agents here are discussing a fluke worm, Scully removed from a male corpse that was discovered in a New Jersey sewer. Okay, so that's New Jersey sewer, male corpse shows up, Scully does the autopsy, finds a fluke worm. This is actually the same young man we meet on the Russian freighter at the beginning of the episode. So we we start aboard the Russian freighter, uh, something terrible happens, and then we pick it up with this dead body uh, some weeks later. So when he was still alive, this young man uh, was cleaning out a blocked waste holding tank um, aboard the Russian freighter when he was attacked and pulled under by something, uh, something that the audience doesn't see. the corpse eventually drifts its way somewhere under Newark. Mulder believes the case to be a distraction from his work on the X-Files and not worth the FBI's attention. At this point in the show's chronology, um, Mulder and Scully have been separated by the FBI. The X-Files have been closed um, and Scully's doing anything she can to sort of buoy Mulder's spirits and to kind of keep him interested in uh, not only staying at the Bureau, but also staying true to finding the truth that is out there. So she volunteers to do the autopsy on this corpse, this case that Mulder thinks is a big waste of time. And it's a good thing that Scully did, because while performing the autopsy, she's treated to the first of many of what those critics were talking about, those jump scares. The corpse's chest cavity open, the clang of instruments against Trey, the revelation of the viscera, when suddenly... Movement. Oh, God! Later in the episode, another victim, uh, this time closer to home, a New Jersey sanitation worker working in New Jersey, um, is also attacked. Mulder's only clue to the attacker is a strange bite mark on the man's back. It turns out it resembles a Skolex, which Scully explains is, quote, a sucker-like mouth with four hooking spikes. This is how the fluke worms attach themselves to hosts at a microscopic level. Like the Russians' encounter with this unseen attacker, the New Jersey sanitation worker ends up dead. It's really gross. While showering, he vomits up a bloody fluke like the one found in the first victim. Except no one collects this one in a jar because it slithers down the shower drain. While Mulder considers the existence of something besides an alligator living in the sewers... The foreman at the Newark County Sewage Processing Plant speculates that there's, quote, no telling what's been breeding down there in the last hundred years, end quote. Coincidentally, shortly after the foreman says this, a panicked report comes in over the wire. Something has been spotted swimming in one of the tanks. I'm back flushing the system. It's in there. What is it? I don't know. Just swam right past me. There it is. This ain't for the squeamish. Uh, the fluke man's flesh looks permanently wet. Like, even when he's not in water. Sopping wet. Like it's covered in viscous, mottled Kleenex. His fanged scolex of a mouth is fiendishly, permanently gaped. His eyes are disquietly human. 
The actor behind the fluke band's gruesome exterior, uh, Darren Morgan, described the latex bodysuit as, quote, terrible, just terrible, end quote. The fluke man is not a sight one simply unsees. I don't see it. There it is. Tucked away in the far corner behind the pipes. Oh my god. I don't know if you can see it from here, but it has no sex organs. It's genderless. Plenty how many these are often hermaphroditic. Mulder, this is amazing. Its vestigial features appear to be parasitic, but it has primate physiology. Against Mulder's protestations, the FBI decides the fluke man should be institutionalized for the time being. While on the back of a U.S. Marshal-helmed ambulance, the creature escapes its restraints, of course, and kills the driver. It crawls into a nearby porta potty near Lake Betty Park and waits until morning when a tanker truck arrives to <clears throat> collect the contents from each porta potty and return it to, you guessed it, the Newark Sewage Processing Plant where it was first captured. Great work, A.D. Skinner. Mulder somehow deduces that this is the creature's intent, as well as the creature's ultimate goal, to free itself from the processing plant and to return to the open waters of the Atlantic. It hadn't occurred to me, but I think that the fluke in the corpse might have been an incubating larva. This creature, or whatever it is, is transmitting its eggs or larvae through its bite. You mean it's trying to reproduce? It's looking for hosts. It attacks because the victim's bodies provide generative nourishment. With the tanker's loads deposited, Mulder waits with the foreman to intercept the creature. Following a wastewater skirmish, ugh, Mulder finally slays the beast, releasing a steel door and separating the fluke man at the waist. So that's the end. Except, of course, for the real ending. The one that only the audience gets to see. The one final glimpse of the fluke man's floating upper torso. You know, the part where his eyes open, his labored breathing returns. Try sitting on a toilet after that finale. I dare you. Scully explains the origins of the creature based on analysis of the flukeworm found inside the Russian crew member. Dissection and analysis indicates reproductive and physiological cross-trading, resulting in a sort of quasi-vertebrate human. Human? Yes, but still capable of spontaneous regeneration like any fluke or flatworm. How does that happen? Radiation, abnormal cell fusion, the suppression of natural genetic processes. Mulder, nature didn't make this thing. We did. She shares a few photographs with Mulder, who immediately recognizes them as Chernobyl victims. Scully concludes that the fluke man, quote, came off of a decommissioned Russian freighter that was used in the disposal of salvaged material from the meltdown. It was born in a primordial soup of radioactive sewage, end quote. I mean, that's fascinating. It's directly tied 
to the event. It's not just an allusion to some mysterious nuclear disaster. Which one could it be? But it, but it's a direct link to Chernobyl. Reading the Fluke Man as a spectral warning of Cold War nuclear armament returned from the depths is absolutely valid. This paying for the sins of the past interpretation makes the Fluke Man's characterization doubly significant when you factor in the anti-parasite law as another relic of the past that comes back to the present, alive and biting. It's kind of like paying for the sins of the past because said past has returned to A, haunt us, and B, destroy us by virtue of it being in the past. This makes the Fluke Man, to me, a monster of the week that grows exponentially more horrifying the more you consider it. The legacy of Soviet preoccupation with labor and those existing beyond labor's bureaucratic reticulum turns the fluke man into a Khrushchevian nightmare brought to life. It's not incidental that the fluke man lives underground, whether in the waters off the Atlantic coast or in the sewers under New Jersey. The fluke man is a subterranean threat. We hear folklore about alligators in the sewer and laugh, but in the back of your mind, don't you kind of wonder? His charming exterior aside, the fluke man is at its most terrifying when it hasn't been identified yet. When you don't know it's a threat until it already has you. When you don't know it's there. Not unlike the perceived anti-socialist threat Khrushchev's anti-parasite law aimed to tackle. These Soviet parasites also lived off the grid. On the periphery. Out of sight, but never of mind. The fluke man struggled to return to what Agent Scully calls, quote, unsanitary conditions. Not only indicates the creature's biological need to reproduce, but also reinforces its synonymy with squalor. It is a filthy thing that thrives in filthy spaces, making itself at home sometimes too close to your nice clean one. It's offspring making themselves at home inside your nutritive, delicious body. Its biological imperative is to reproduce by direct contact, and this contact eventually terminates the host. While the fluke man doesn't discriminate who it bites, it's worth considering that the episode's two confirmed victims on the cargo ship and in the sewers are laborers working in or near smelly conditions. They become infected by merely making contact with the creature. The consequence of being bitten by the fluke man is, of course, to carry its offspring parasites. And then the cycle just starts all over again. Their offspring, and their offspring's offspring. Poor people will breed, creating more need and fostering a continuous cycle of dependence. Rich people will breed, bequeathing wealth and fostering a continuous cycle of entitlement. It's no wonder that, with such a low bar for infection, there's no other recourse for Agent Mulder than to completely and totally exterminate the monstrosity. Mulder makes clear to his superior, that guy I was poking fun at earlier, uh, assistant director Walter Skinner, that nothing good will come of institutionalizing the fluke man. There's no way you'll prosecute this. 
The Justice Department has asked the suspect be transferred to an institution for a full psychiatric evaluation. This is not a man. It's a monster. You can't put it in an institution. Well, what do you do with it, Agent Mueller? Put it in a zoo? It killed two people. A word like parasite on its own does nothing until you add something to it. A parasite becomes a social parasite. Like an alien becomes an illegal alien. Thus labeled, the subject is categorically non-human. Subhuman. These things don't require the same empathy, the same deference given to other humans because the labeler and the labeled don't share a genetic ancestry. A totally different species of predator that doesn't stalk like other predators, but proves more cunning, more sure of itself and its biological imperative. One could say it's almost human. This fear over what happens after the metaphorical fluke Skolex has detached is no more essentialized than when Mulder believes he has dispatched the creature, only for the audience to discover the truth. The fluke man endures and will likely regenerate. But what does that do to the audience? What do they lose? We see the truth and it pierces that protective notion that such monstrosities can be killed once and for all. That such biological cycles, like the one driving the fluke man, really do mirror the social ones we've created and perpetuated. Or the understanding that these biological cycles, existing long before us, and likely long after us, will find a way to thrive to reproduce, to challenge our position on this planet. Never-ending, seemingly infinite cycles of history, of fear, of the unknown. I suppose it's those cycles that are at the heart of this issue. Earlier, we heard a report that proclaimed the end of Stalinism and the rise of Khrushchev. And then Khrushchev introduced the anti-parasite law. We heard another report from 1991 that proclaimed the end of the Soviet Union and the rise of Boris Yeltsin in a newer, freer Russia. Then, in 1993, roughly a year before the Fox network aired The Host, Yeltsin ordered the Russian army to storm the parliament building in a violent and bloody episode that came to be known as Black October. But the people inside the Russian White House, um, I'd like to point out, they say that they are on the side of the Constitution. They constantly say, we're the ones who are um, in the legislature, we're the ones who are on the side of the Constitution. And that's where a lot of difficulty would also lie, though, because they say they are the defenders of the Constitution. It, it might otherwise be a scholarly, academic, constitutional debate. It is being played out, though, as a conflict, a street battle in the streets of Moscow. If you're just joining us, this is live. The battle for the Russian parliament, forces loyal to President Boris Yeltsin, surrounding and preparing, it would seem, for an assault on renegade lawmakers barricaded inside the Russian legislature. Yeltsin's swift and dramatic reforms left many in the fledgling country well below the poverty line. Protests erupted in the streets. Lawmakers and citizens band together against the elected president, going so far as to reject his presidency. 
They impeached Yeltsin and elected a different guy. Did you know there was a period where Russia had two elected presidents? Thanks to the Russian military siding largely with Yeltsin, this didn't last long. The army broke through the barricades, took floor by floor of the parliament building. The armed conflict was over and done with in under two weeks. How did this happen, though? Or better yet, how could this happen? Wasn't all this settled in the past and left to the history books? <sighs> Maybe it's true, that whole thing about history repeating itself. And if it is, perhaps the only safeguard against repeating history, the conflicts and the despair, is to recognize what usually precedes history's reemergence. And that's complacency. Thank you, thank you so much for taking the time this week to absorb all this information. I know it was a lot. We went through a lot of Russian history. We went through a lot of bureaucracy and lawmaking. We went through a lot of X-Files, I think. And I want to promise you, kiddos, that the truth is most certainly out there. And I want to promise you another thing, that if you think, if you actually think that this is the very last time that you, the audience, will be hearing about the X-Files from me, Dixby, the host of In Lieu Of, well, I'm here to tell you, you've got another thing coming. I hope it was apparent how much I love this show and how much I adore this particular episode. But I also encourage you to think about the beginning of this issue, the protests in Belarus, their connection to an old 1960s Soviet-era law, and how that law persisted. I think you'll find, when you start looking, that there's a lot more here, a lot more connections that I didn't even bring up today, that I didn't even mention today. Talk to me, kiddos. Email me at dixby at inlueofpod.com. Follow us on Instagram at inlueof underscore podcast. And don't forget to stay tuned to future issues. We're now up on the Apple Podcast app. Uh, I'm told we're up on Google Play at this point. And uh, we have some other listening options coming soon to you so that the good name of In Lieu of will be spread far and wide across the podscape. Oh, but I got to tell you, as for as for another issue, I, I don't know. I'm going to I think I'm going to need some time, kiddos. I'm going to need a palate cleanser, frankly, after everything that we just talked about, the porta potties, the fluke, man. And it's all just kind of. OK, subject is a male Caucasian. Uh, approximately 24 inches 24 inches in uh, length uh, subject weighs approximately 18 pounds and is about eight months old when he does sleep where do you put him uh, right around here I'll show you Bankman, would you get a stool specimen please business or personal can't escape the poop oh well in lieu of a more sanitized host I've been Dixby Caravaggio. Until next time, my friends. <laughs>